0: Well, you might be surprised that we're starting a new chapter in Matthew 16 and then immediately taking a break from Matthew, um, but it actually works in the narrative because what have we seen in the last little bit in our narrative? We've seen basically since the end of chapter 13, we've seen all these different groups that Matthew is focusing on, panning the camera onto, and seeing their responses to Jesus and their views on Jesus. Uh, are, and then along with that, are they responding in faith? Um, and the idea of faith being you're seeing who Jesus is, you're seeing his identity, you're seeing what he can do, you're seeing his character, and then you are acting based on that knowledge. You're following him, you're pursuing him, you're responding according to the message of Jesus that he has given throughout. Repent for the kingdom of heaven has drawn near, responding in repentance, laying down arms and of following sin and self and entrusting yourself to Jesus and following him. And we've seen a number of different categories of people. We saw Herod, we saw the people in Jesus' hometown that knew him best or saw him growing up. We've seen the disciples a couple times exercise faith and yet it's not perfect. And then we saw the Canaanite woman exercise a great faith and a persistent faith, a bold faith, based on who Jesus is. And all of these things, all of these episodes kind of begin to culminate in chapter 16, where we'll go when we come back from our break from Matthew, we'll come back and we'll start in verse 13, where Jesus says, you know, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And really, what you see is a summary of all that's happened before in the narrative. So really what we're going to see today in Matthew 16, 1 through 12, it's it's a turning point. It's the end of one section in this narrative, and then when we pick it back up, it's going to be the beginning of another. And what we see, where we see Matthew pan the camera today, is on to the Pharisees and Sadducees, and to an extent, on to the disciples again. And really, a, a lot of the issue is in this Section is teaching and the teachers that are in the culture. So you think about Matthew's audience. Who's Matthew's audience? They're Jewish Christians, uh, probably in Palestine. What you need to understand is um, that when Matthew wrote his gospel, it's likely it's before the destruction of the temple in AD 70, most likely. And so you have to understand that the Sadducees and the Pharisees are still around. So Jesus has died. He's re- By the time Matthew writes his gospel, Jesus has died. He's resurrected. He's ascended to the right hand of the Father. But the Jewish Christians in that area, they are still dealing with the Pharisees and Sadducees. And you also have to understand that the Pharisees and Sadducees, they are the teachers. They are the ones that everyone is following. They're the ones that their neighbors, their Jewish neighbors and friends and family are listening to. And so the question is, how do, you, how do you deal with that? How do you deal with that? How do you deal with the many voices, or the voices at least of the Pharisees and Sadducees for Matthew's audience? But we could ask our question in our time, in our place. There's many voices of teaching in our culture, uh, not just under what goes under the name of Christianity, but uh, beyond that, there are many voices of teaching. You're always being taught. You're always being taught something. Someone's influencing you how do you know what to listen to and what to avoid? How do you know what to listen to or what to avoid? Or even you can think about it in terms of just the internet. If you're going to go on and you're going to listen to um, maybe a Bible teacher, someone who's uh, saying that they're going to teach you the Bible, they're going to teach you the scriptures, how do you know what to click on, what to listen to, and what to avoid? How do you know that? And so some of those issues get raised in our text this morning. And so The big idea for Matthew 16, 1 through 12, as we enter it this morning, that was there for the original audience and that's there for us, is this, beware of teaching that promotes self-justification rather than seeing and following Jesus. Beware of teaching that promotes self-justification rather than seeing and following Jesus. And there's, even as Jim read the section this morning, you could probably see there's two clear sections to this passage. There's one where Jesus is dealing with the Pharisees and scribes directly, and then there's a second where he's talking to his disciples about them and about the disciples themselves. So we start off first in verses 1 through 4 with this idea that Jesus has given sufficient signs of his identity on his own terms. Jesus has given sufficient signs of his identity on his own terms. Look at verse 1. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test them, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. Now, this is odd to have the Pharisees and Sadducees come because they are on different ends of the uh, political and religious spectrum. Politics and religion are totally mixed in that culture, right? There's no separation there whatsoever. And so you've got the Pharisees and Sadducees really at opposite ends of that spectrum. The Pharisees uh, were popular with the people. They were known as expert interpreters of the law, but they also were more, they were looking forward to uh, the end of Roman rule. They were looking forward to the reestablishment of uh, a Messiah, the kingship of Israel. And they believed in things like the resurrection, um, things like angels, uh, things like um, uh, an afterlife, whereas the Sadducees did not. They didn't believe in an afterlife. You just believed you died, and that was it. Uh, they didn't believe in a resurrection, therefore. Um, they also didn't believe in an angel or a spirit. They also didn't believe in what the Pharisees were doing uh, with taking... Uh, taking the scriptures and then extending beyond them and saying, okay, well, let's, let's, let's apply uh, the scriptures in this way. You must do this. Thinking of, think back a couple of weeks to where the Pharisees were saying, well, you got to wash your hands before you eat bread to keep ritual purity. And the, the Sadducees didn't believe in that. it seems like they only held to the first five books of the Bible, the books of Moses, as their scriptures. So you got to think, these guys are on opposite ends, of the spectrum. The Sadducees are also more aristocratic. They're more tied to the temple in Jerusalem. Uh, they want to, they're happy, really, to have the Romans kind of rule things as long as they keep their position and their power. Uh, and yet, they both were part of what was known as the Sanhedrin, this kind of group governing a lot of Israelite affairs that reported to Rome. But it's really odd to have both of them come to, together to do something, Now, we've seen them do this before. The last time we saw them grouped together like this is in Matthew 3, when they came to John the Baptist and to investigate his teaching. And we saw that. Well, here, it's probably that they're coming uh, to investigate Jesus. I mean, that's what we see. They're coming to test him by asking him a sign from heaven. And there's sort of an escalation that we see in the book of Matthew, where uh, we see, you know, there's Pharisees up in Galilee, way up north and they've opposed him. We saw that in chapter 12. We saw at the beginning of chapter 15, we've got Pharisees and scribes from Jerusalem. So now they're traveling from the south up to the north to confront Jesus. Now we've not only got Pharisees and scribes, which are normally the group that's paired together, now we've got the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So we've got a strong official Jerusalem contingent coming to investigate and to talk to Jesus. And what do they want? They ask, they have a request of him, but we know we know their motive. Matthew tells you what tells you what their motive is to test him. And this kind of testing is the idea: we're gonna put this, this guy under pressure and we're gonna see what comes out. We're gonna put this guy under pressure and we're gonna see what comes out. So they're gonna test him, and so it's not a pure motive, it's not a genuine motive. It's not like they really want to know and to see what they're asking Jesus to do. They're doing it to test him. Why? Because they want to, it, it, the, the way they ask it, the way they frame it, they're wanting to reinforce their own position, their own authority uh, in, in the land. So, what do they ask him? They ask him for a sign from heaven. It's actually probably that they're asking him a sign to show in the sky. So, Matthew's pretty consistent. When he uses heavens plural, he usually means the abode of God. And then when he uses heaven singular, like he is here in the original, he's usually referring to the sky. So, essentially, what they're asking for is hey, do a sign in the sky show us some sort of visual sign in the sky. Why? Why would they ask this? Well, we actually kind of talked a little bit about this this morning in the equipping hour, that that the idea is that prophets that would speak for God, they would often do a sign to authenticate who they were. They would do some sort of miracle or prediction or some sort of external sign, some sort of flashy sign maybe, that God would use to authenticate that minister, uh, minister, that prophet. And so the Sadducees and Pharisees are doing something that on the surface, at least, is in line with what God has talked about. Okay, if you're claiming to be this Messiah or this prophet that's speaking for God, show us a sign in the sky that proves who you are. But why are they doing it? They're doing it to test him. They're really not doing it genuinely. They're doing it to reinforce their own position, to justify their response to him. What does he say? Verse two, he answered them, When it is evening, you say it will be fair weather for the sky. So notice the connection there. It's actually the same word in the original heaven, sky, same word for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today for the sky is red and threatening. So this is kind of the the knowledge that you develop by living in a place for a certain amount of time, right? You develop an understanding of weather patterns and what you see in the sky or what you feel in the wind, and you understand, oh, it's going to be this kind of weather because this and this is happening. And that's what Jesus is referring to. So in Palestine at this time, they had understood, okay, we watch for these signs. This is what's going to happen. These signs in the sky that we see, this is what is going to happen with the weather, and Jesus saying, you guys do that and you do that well. And then what does he say? He says, "You know how to interpret or to discern the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times." What's he meaning there? The signs of the times. Well, he's referring to the things that he has been doing, that John has been doing, but that he has been doing. What has Jesus been doing? He's been getting all sorts of miracles, all sorts of foretastes of the coming kingdom. What's Jesus' message? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. So all these things that he's been doing, um, uh, like feeding the 5,000 or feeding the 4,000 or casting out demons or healing everyone just instantly— like there's plenty of signs, and what those signs show, just like he talked to John the Baptist about, the signs show that, yeah, I'm the Messiah, right? These are the signs of the times. The idea of the times here is like this epic, this, this change of the ages, which is exactly what's going on. Uh, what's happened with John? What's happened with Jesus? There's big stuff happening, and Jesus has given plenty, ample signs to show what is happening. And he's saying to the Pharisees, look, you, you guys are missing all of this other stuff, and you're asking for a sign in the sky. You, you've missed all of the signs of the times. They're there, but you're asking for a sign in the sky. Really, it's kind, of, uh, it's kind of sarcastic. It's kind of like Jesus is effectively saying, oh, yes, you'd like to see a sign in the sky, wouldn't you? Because you're good at that, interpreting the weather, even though you're missing the signs that are already right in front of you. You're good at interpreting the weather. That's why you asked for a sign in the sky but you're missing this stuff right in front of you. It's somewhat sarcastic. seems that way anyhow. There, he understands that their request for a sign is not legitimate. It's not legitimate. It's, it's, a, it's a disingenuous request to reinforce their own authority. It's not a genuine seeking of Jesus because it, they had plenty of evidence, plenty of signs that Jesus had done to show who he was. And so that's why he says in verse 4, An evil and adulterous generation. So now he's not just talking about the Pharisees and Sadducees, he's talking about the whole generation, that generation of Israelites. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. Now, why does he say that? He said this before. In fact, the language here and what he's saying is is basically identical to Matthew 12, 38 through 39. We're going to go back there in a second. But He's saying the same thing. This generation, not just the Pharisees and Sadducees, but like the crowds that are still coming and they're receiving like the signs that Jesus is doing, but they're not repenting. They're not following Jesus. He's calling the whole generation, including the Pharisees and Sadducees that are representatives in this case, an evil and adulterous generation. Why? Because there have been plenty of signs given and instead of seeing who Jesus is and following Him, they are they are seeking to put up defenses. Uh, they're seeking other signs. They're seeking to put up. It's not. We already know this. It's not a genuine request. They're seeking to test Him so that they don't follow Him. So that instead of following God and where God is going through Jesus, instead of following Jesus Himself, they're seeking to escape. They're seeking to escape that. That's why they're called an evil and adulterous generation. They're t- instead of turning to God and what God is doing through his Messiah, they are turning away from it as an evil and adulterous generation. Actually, the language is somewhat similar to uh, the Exodus generation. Remember the Exodus generation? They came out and they saw all of God's signs. They saw all those plagues. And yet what happened to them in the desert? They fell dead because of unbelief. Because they were an evil and adulterous generation, they wanted more signs, they could grumble, God would give them another sign, and yet they fell dead. It's a similar sort of thing with Jesus' generation. There's plenty of evidence, there's plenty of signs, but it's an evil and adulterous generation that seeks for a sign, but no sign, not in the way that they're asking for it, will be given to it, the generation, except the sign of Jonah the sign of Jonah. Now, we've seen this before. Like I said, we saw this happen in Matthew 12. So go back to Matthew 12. In Matthew 12, it was a similar setting where we have the scribes and the Pharisees, and he casts out a demon from a who's blind and mute. And they say, well, he's only doing that by the power of Beelzebul. And then he argues and says, Uh, That's ridiculous. That's nonsensical reasoning. It's by the Spirit of God that I'm doing these things. And then he really condemns them and says, you guys are evil uh, trees. The reason you're bearing that kind of fruit is that you're bad trees. And then in response to that, in verse 38, we get this. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. So same kind of a thing. This doesn't specify a sign from heaven, but some sort of sign And notice how he answers, verse 39 in chapter 12. But he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And so Jesus is more... um, He doesn't explain to the Pharisees and Sadducees what he means by the sign of Jonah, but he has kind of arguably explained it back in chapter 12. And Matthew's audience, Matthew's expecting, okay, you guys remember what the sign of Jonah is, right? So let's remember that. What is the sign of Jonah? Well, let's go back to Jonah first. You remember Jonah. He rebels against God. Uh, He's called to go to a Gentile nation and preach uh, judgment on that nation and uh, Jonah doesn't go. He rebels. In fact, Jonah in the book, Jonah's a real guy, but he represents Israel. He represents Israel's attitude at the time, because Israel is doing like external, good forms of worship, some good, but then there are wicked and evil people. They're an evil and adulterous generation, even in Jonah's day. So Jonah rebels, but then God saves him through this. Um, he gets thrown overboard, fish comes, swallows Jonah, three days, three nights, he gets spit out on land, He goes to Nineveh. Uh, And then he says, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. And then people fall all over themselves in this Gentile um, city of Nineveh, uh, repenting. They fall all over themselves repenting. And Jonah is ticked by the end that everyone repents. Um, And what is going on? Well, first, why did people fall all over themselves repenting? well, we said that, I don't know what three days and three nights in this big old fish is going to do to your parents, but it's going to do something, probably lasting. Um, And so then he shows up in the city and he says, yet 40 days and Nineveh is going to be destroyed. And they see him and like, well, where'd you come from, buddy? And he uh, says, well, I came from a great fish. And, but where is Jonah at? Uh, Nineveh means fish town and they worship a bunch of fish gods. So that got their attention. You came from the mouth of the big fish and you're, Proclaiming judgment against us, so at least got their initial attention, and yet they eventually did repent and trust the true God. The true God, so that at one level is the sign of Jonah for the Ninevites. What happened to him in the fish was some of it seems like is some of the basis for their repentance, but there's more to it than that because. Jonah, as a book, was not written to Nineveh, it was written to Israel. And like we said, Jonah embodies the attitude of the Israelites. And really, what, Jonah, what happens with Jonah in the book of Jonah is God is saying, see what happened with the Ninevites and how they repented because Jonah was three days and three nights in the fish? That's what you guys, Israel, should be doing. It's an indictment to Israel. So what happened with Jonah and what happened with the repentance of the Gentile Ninevites based on Jonah becomes a sign of judgment to Israel. Israel, unless you repent, you're going to be destroyed too, which is exactly what happened. Chapter 2, Jonah's descent and near-death experience is described in terms of like an exile, an exile away from God's presence, and that's exactly what God brought on the nation of Israel. So the sign of Jonah functions at two levels. One, for the Ninevites, but then when you see all these people repenting, these Gentiles repenting, it becomes a sign of indictment to Israel itself. Now, what is Jesus doing with it? Jesus is saying, hey, uh, something's coming where like Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, the Son of Man, referring to himself, is going to be three days and three nights in the ground. And what's the idea? He's pointing in a cryptic way to the resurrection, to his death and resurrection. And when you follow this through, when Jesus does rise from the, the dead, you see in Acts, the Jews recognize oh no, the Messiah has been raised from the dead. We killed the Messiah. It became a sign of judgment to Israel. And some of them repented. But then by the end of Acts, what do you see? You see a bunch of Gentiles repenting because of the resurrection. And it's an indictment to Israel, just like with Jonah. So what is Jesus doing with this, both in chapter 12 and chapter 16, by saying, well, no sign's gonna be given to this generation except the sign of Jonah. He's saying, effectively, this is a wicked, evil, adulterous generation. It's not repenting. It's not listening to the message. So what sign is it going to get? It's going to get the sign of Jonah. It's going to get the sign, once it happens, they're going to see it, of the resurrection. And that resurrection is actually going to be a sign of judgment. And especially the repentance of the Gentiles is going to be a sign of judgment to Israel. You missed it. You missed the Messiah. You blew it. The kingdom's not coming now, not yet, it will come eventually, because of your response. You've had plenty of signs, but you're failing to see the signs of the times. That was what Jesus is saying in chapter 16. So what's the only sign you're going to get? The sign of judgment, the sign of Jonah. And then notice how verse 4 in chapter 16 ends. It's not a throwaway ending to his interchange with the Pharisees and Sadducees. It says this, so he left them, and departed. Actually, the idea of left them a, it can be a little more stronger than that. It can be the idea of abandoned, like he's abandoning them and leaving. Meaning what? It's we've already seen that the, the, the die is cast in chapter 12. It's been cast for a while now. But again, it's that illustration that Jesus is walking away from that generation. That generation had the opportunity to repent and entrust themselves to Christ, and he would have set up the kingdom. And they blew it. They missed the signs of the times. They were an evil and adulterous generation, Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes. Now there were people, some people who did repent. That's where the disciples come in. But by and large, they did not. And so what? That generation is going to face its judgment. And Jesus leaving them. He's departing. Why? Because... Jesus has given enough signs about who he is through his ministry. God doesn't give signs to suit people's capricious whims or to reinforce someone in their presumption of testing him. That's not why God gives signs. God does give signs. He does, and he has. But he doesn't do it, you know, sometimes you hear people say, well, if God would give me a sign, then I'd believe No, you wouldn't. You'd be like the Pharisees and Sadducees. Because God doesn't give signs to suit capricious whims or to reinforce someone in the presumption, right? That's what the Pharisees and Sadducees, they're not asking genuinely. They're just doing it to reinforce their own presumption and not believing in Jesus, to reinforce their own authority, to justify themselves. Self-justification, self-promotion, that's what's their focus. God doesn't give signs to suit one's capricious whims or to reinforce someone in their presumption. God gives graciously signs and proofs on his own terms sufficient for repentance and faith in Jesus. He did that then, and it's true now. God has given sufficient signs and proofs to authenticate his Son, to authenticate his Son. We see Jesus in the pages of Scripture. We see eyewitness testimony of what God did, what Jesus did by his divine power as the God-man, God man, God the Son incarnate, healing people, feeding five thousand, feeding four thousand, walking on water, again, et cetera, et cetera. Et cetera. God has done sufficient signs and proofs through Jesus. We have the witness to that in the scriptures, so those signs still speak to us, and they are sufficient. They are sufficient. And what are they sufficient for? They're sufficient for what was Jesus called? Repent, for the kingdom of the heavens has drawn near. That judgment is coming. That's the idea of the kingdom coming, right? When Jesus' kingdom comes, and it will come, that the judgment will come of all people, and wrath is coming. God's wrath is coming against sin. Every single person is a rebel against God, against him, trying to live for themselves, to be self-promoters, to be self-justifiers like the Pharisees and scribes, or to be just ambivalent like the crowds. And that's rebellion in God's eyes, and rebellion against a holy God, an infinitely just God, a beautiful God, the only God, as we sang earlier, is deserving of an infinite punishment in the fires of his judgment for all eternity. And yet, the call that Jesus gave compassionately and that he still gives is repentance. Lay down arms. Stop living for yourself. Stop living as a rebel. Stop stop living as a self-justifier, as a self-promoter. You're promoting yourself over against the God of the universe. Lay down arms, repent, swear allegiance to Jesus, and follow him as master, as the one who died for his people in their place so that they wouldn't have to bear God's wrath. He bore God's wrath on the cross for those who would entrust themselves to him, those who would swear allegiance to him, and those who would walk faithfully in all of life for Jesus. God has given sufficient proofs. Jesus has given sufficient proofs for that end. So, Jesus has given sufficient signs of his identity on his own terms. Second, we see this in the passage in verses 5 through 12. Your intake of teaching is more important than your intake of food. Your intake of teaching is more important than your intake of food. Look at verse 5 when the disciples reached the other side. Now, pause there. That's a geographic note, right? He's telling us something about some geography. So they're up in Galilee, around the Sea of Galilee, and uh, where has he been? Well, the last thing we knew of in verse 39 in chapter 15 was he was in this region of Magadan. Where is Magadan? Uh, We don't know exactly. Uh, It might be uh, Magdala, but it's probably most likely on the western shore the, uh, of the Sea of Galilee. Now, before that, Jesus went up to Tyre and Sidon, way, Gentile territory. It seems like he came down through the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, again, kind of a sparse Gentile territory. And then he crosses over after the feeding of the 4,000 to Magadan on the western shore, which is, uh, which is Jewish territory. And what immediately happens? Well, we just saw the confrontation with the Pharisees and Sadducees. So what does Jesus do? He withdraws again. Um, and. This whole withdrawal thing is going to culminate uh, the next time we come back to Matthew with him going way north to Caesarea Philippi before he takes his final move to Jerusalem. So that's where all the geographic movements are heading towards. So where are they at now? If the disciples reach the other side, well, they were on the western side. That's where the confrontation happened, the western side of the Sea of Galilee. So now where are they going? They're going to the eastern side, which is more sparsely populated, more Gentile predominant. Uh, and what happens? Well, the disciples reached the other side. They had forgotten to bring any bread. Now, we don't know how much time has passed since the feeding of the 4,000. They evidently, right after that, went to the western side. They had this interchange. We don't know how, if, um, if it's, they should have brought bread from the feeding of the 4,000, the leftovers, or if it's just bread in general. Regardless, they don't have bread. Why would they need bread? Well, probably the area they're going, if, if it's true to The areas they've gone on the eastern shore before are sparsely populated. Not a lot of places to buy bread from. So they didn't bring provisions. And what does Jesus say? Verse 6, Jesus said to them, Watch, or watch out, look out, and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. So he's linking what he's saying with the Pharisees and Sadducees in the episode he just had with them in verses 1 through 4 and he mentions the idea of leaven. Now, remember what leaven is. It's sourdough. Uh, you would bake a, you know, a batch of dough, and you would let it ferment, and that's, you got your sourdough. So, you'd take a little bit of sourdough, and you would take some of the sourdough and put it in your next batch of dough to help it to rise. So, that's the idea of leaven. We remember that. And it's kind of unclear. what is Jesus responding to, to their understanding, the, that they had forgotten to bring any bread in any sort of way? Is he just kind of being, you know, kind of drawing a pun? are not sure, but we do know, uh, look at verse 7, they began discussing it amongst themselves, saying, literally, because we brought no bread. In other words, they interpret what they hear Jesus saying in his warning as saying, oh, he's saying that because we brought no bread. Evidently, it takes it takes some time for them to come to that because they talk amongst themselves. They're like, what? what does it mean, leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees? What, what do you think he means? Well, we, we forgot to bring bread, leaven, bread. So he must, he must be saying that because we forgot bread. Now, I don't know if it's more logical than that, or it's just the fact that they're preoccupied with bread. We forgot bread. We don't have provisions. What are we going to do? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees, leaven, bread. I really need bread. Oh, he must be saying that because we didn't bring any bread. We don't know if there was more, some more logical reason than that, or if it's just that their minds jumped to the thing that they're preoccupied with, but regardless, they are preoccupied with bread. Their physical provisions uh, going into evidently some sort of um, remote area probably brought no bread. He's saying that because we brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, So he finds out, or listens, he said, Oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing amongst yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Now, this is a rhetorical question, meaning he's asking it, but the answer is assumed, meaning you shouldn't be discussing this amongst yourselves. Why in the world are you talking about having no bread? And even more than that, Jesus is saying, this is an evidence of little faith, Uh, which we've seen, uh, he's told the disciples that a couple times, a couple times, doesn't mean they have no faith, they do have faith, it's just growing, it's not great faith like the Canaanite woman who's persistently and boldly coming, but he's saying, you guys shouldn't be discussing this, you shouldn't be worried about having no bread, you guys shouldn't be preoccupied. About not having these physical provisions for survival. In fact, you're evidencing little faith by doing so. Well, how so? He explains, verse 9. Do you not yet perceive? Meaning, you should be perceiving something, but you're not. Do you not yet remember? You should be remembering something, but you're not. The five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gather. Don't you remember that? or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered. Notice how each one ends. It's an ending on how many, like how much bread you took away. You started with a little bit of food and then we fed, or I, I gave you food. Remember how that worked? Jesus multiplied the loaves, but he gave it to the disciples to feed to the people. You fed all those people and then you took those baskets back, all those leftovers. You ended with more bread than you started with. Which is a creative act of the God man. Don't you remember how many? Because they're preoccupied. Well, we don't have anything, right? We don't have any loaves. He's saying, you guys, that's little faith. Why? Because there should be no worry about bread and having enough bread. Because Jesus has already shown I can multiply loaves. Like, you don't have any loaves. No problem, right? Because he's already done this creative act by, um, act by multiplying low. So if you're with Jesus and you're following Jesus, you shouldn't be preoccupied with these just physical survival concerns. You're with Jesus, you're following Jesus as the disciple. Jesus could easily provide for those things. So you're just focused. Remember what faith does. Remember Peter, he's, he sees Jesus on the water. And he's like, as long as he keeps looking at Jesus and seeing and remembering Jesus is the God-man, I can see him walking on the water, he's the creator God, I'm going to keep walking towards him on the water. You act in response to who Jesus is. Well, these guys aren't. They're not seeing who Jesus is, and they're not acting on that knowledge of who Jesus is and what he demonstrated through the feeding of the 4,000 and the feeding of the 5,000. And so he says in verse 11, how is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread. I'm not worried about bread. (laughs) I already showed that. I I can deal with the bread situation. And then he reiterates his warning. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He doesn't explain it, but Matthew does, verse 12. Then they understood that he did not tell them To beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. So then they get it. Okay, he's talking about teaching. Teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Now let's just start with the, the metaphor. So he's thinking of teaching like leaven. Well, remember what we said about leaven it's sourdough, and you're baking a new batch of dough. So you take your fermented dough, it's a little bit of dough in relation to. You know, the new batch you're making, and you add that in, and what happens? Well, you mix it all together, and eventually that leavening process is going to permeate the whole batch. And that's a good metaphor for teaching in general, right? If you take in teaching, what is teaching supposed to do? It's supposed to change how you think and act about things so that, you know, it's a little bit of teaching that you might get, but it's going to permeate your whole life. That's kind of the metaphor that Jesus is using. And here he's saying, Okay, if that's the case, then you got to beware of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And notice, it's one teaching for both groups, which is interesting, isn't it? Because what we said is the Pharisees and Sadducees are like opposite ends of the spectrum. They don't hold a lot in common. They do hold some things in common. They do hold the law in common. So that's a big thing. But there is some way in which Jesus is thinking about the teaching, their teaching, even as two separate groups, as being one teaching, and you got to be aware of it. So what's the question? What is the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees? What does that mean? Well, thankfully, we've gotten, we got the rest of Matthew, what came prior to this, to kind of give us some clues as to what that is. We've had a lot of characterization of especially the Pharisees, but a little bit of the Sadducees as well. So let's go back to the last time we saw the Pharisees and Sadducees together in Matthew 3. Go back to Matthew 3, because that's the last time we saw them together in a group like this. And they're going out to John the Baptist. And what is John doing? He's preaching a... uh, a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Um, and we see that in chapter 3, verse 6. Um, John's ministry gets characterized. They were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. And his message, John's message, is the same Repent, for the kingdom of the heavens has drawn near. So he sets that up, but then verse 7 in chapter 3 says this. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, "You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance And there we get a clue, don't we? John is talking to these two groups that we, same groups that we see in G, uh, you know, coming to Jesus and What's one thing that John says? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So what can we imply from that? What can we infer from that? Well, that the Pharisees, at least, at least and the Sadducees, at least in some of the things they do, they're seeking or purporting to seek repentance, which is what? A change of allegiance? A change of allegiance, a laying down of arms against God and following sin and self and turning to God. But the reality is a true allegiance change results in true action change, right? So it's not true to say that just the actions that you do are all that repentance is, because you could do a lot of external actions that look good, but then does it actually res- come from a true allegiance change from God? But it's big, repentance is a big picture thing. It's an allegiance change. It's turning from sin and self to God, but that's got to result in action. It has to result in fruits. And if it doesn't result in fruit, then your repentance isn't genuine. It can't be. Not in the eyes of God. And so what is Jesus saying here? Or sorry, what is John saying here? He's saying, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. In other words, you guys are at least somehow externally saying that you're repenting, but there's no fruit behind it. So you've got this externalism that doesn't actually result in any change in your lives. So that's at least one component that we could say of how the Pharisees and the Sadducees are acting. There's this externalism, there's the show of repentance with no fruit. That's one aspect of who they are and what they teach. Verse 9 in chapter 3, "'And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father.'" For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. So now we can infer something from that. John is saying, well, you guys aren't bearing any fruit in relation to repentance. And essentially, he's cutting off an objection that he knows they will raise. And what is the objection that he knows they'll raise? We have Abraham as our father, meaning what? We're part of the Abrahamic covenant, that covenant that God made with Abraham in the Old Testament. We're uh, offspring of Abraham, so we're good. We don't need to really worry about the fruits of repentance that you're talking about. We've got the proper heritage. We have the proper advantages. We're good. And that's another aspect of the teaching of the Sadducees and Pharisees that they shared in common. But we see even more as we walk through Matthew, and uh, there's been multiple of these. Even in the Sermon on the Mount, what does Jesus say Uh, in verse 20, chapter 5, verse 20, of the Sermon on the Mount, he says, for I tell you, talking to his disciples, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Meaning what? He's got the Pharisees and Sadducees, uh, excuse me, the Pharisees and scribes, at the very least, in sights in the Sermon on the Mount. You've heard that it was said by the scribes and Pharisees, but I say to you, this is what true righteousness looks like. And you can see in chapter 6, how does chapter 6 start? Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. And again, he's probably got the Pharisees and the scribes and maybe the Sadducees too in his sights, that you're doing your righteousness, you're doing these external things in order to be praised by people, but you've got no heart in it, you're not actually, you're doing it for why? What motivation for the praise of other people? Rather than for God, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. So we see this externalism, this desire not for God's approval from the heart, but for the praise of other people. And then if you wanted to get very close to where we are in chapter 16 and seeing the Pharisees and how they're characterized, we got chapter 15, verses 1 through 9. Chapter 15, verses 1 through 9, what do we got? Then the Pharisees and scribes. you would have gained from me is given to God. He need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites! Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So what do you see there? You see a couple things. One, you see they're, the, the, the Pharisees and scribes, they're elevating their tradition over above and over against God's word such that they void God's word. So they're valuing their tradition above that. And what's the effect? They're teaching doctrines. They're teaching doctrines, the commandments of men. So Pharisees and Sadducees, different groups, but they're both doing the commandments of men. They're both doing tradition Remember, we said tradition's not bad. It just means you're handing something over. But when you take that tradition and you make it of more weight and more value, or even of equal value to the Word of God, it's false. And what happens? You can do all the external things, but then we see here, your heart is far away. Such that, what results when you do that? Well, then you've got even though you have different external teachings, then you can have the Pharisees and Sadducees coming together in verses 1 through 4. Why? Because all of those things, if they're all external, there's no heart in it, there's a desire for the pleasure of people, or people, you're trying to please people, and you're trying to look good in front of other people, and then you ask for the Messiah for a sign from heaven to reinforce your own position, right? Right. So we get to see their teaching. How could we characterize the teaching of the scribes or the Sadducees and the Pharisees? We could say it like this. Their teaching emphasizes actions only disconnected from the inner person. Actions only disconnected from the inner person. We could say this. Their teaching emphasizes reliance on natural privileges and heritages rather than repentance and faith. It, uh, we could characterize it like this, that their teaching elevates tradition above God's Word. And really, all of it is aimed at seeking to justify and promote self rather than listening to what God is saying. They're not really trying to listen. They're not really trying to seek what's true. They're seeking to justify and promote themselves. And Jesus is telling his disciples, beware of that, watch out for that. What does that imply, that that Jesus is telling his disciples, who are following him right now, what does it imply that he tells them to beware of it? And especially as you think, he's starting with the disciples, and that's going to be the core of the church, and what's going to become the church, founded on Jesus and founded on the gospel what does it imply that Jesus tells his disciples to beware of those things? It means that whether you're talking Sadducees, whether you're talking about Pharisees, whether you're talking about Christians, you're susceptible to the same things. You're susceptible to the same things because the human heart is bent and naturally desires to promote and justify self. That is rebellion against God. I mean, you can even think back to the Garden right after the sin. What is Adam trying to do? Well, it's the woman you gave me, right? Well, what's he doing? He's seeking to justify himself and to promote himself. That's everything. That's what everyone does, and it's rebellion against God. Rather than repentance, which says, yes, I am wrong. I'm a rebel against God. I lay down arms. I lay down following myself, seeking myself, promoting myself, justifying myself and I rely totally and utterly nothing of myself, but only on what God has done through Jesus Christ, paying for my sins in my place, being my righteousness in my place. I have nothing, and I follow him. We're susceptible to the same forms of distortion, of teaching. So as we think about lessons to take away from this second portion First we can see this right your intake of teaching is more important than your intake of food the the disciples are like fixated on food right and they're they okay yeah you need food to live but Jesus had already addressed that back in Matthew 6 trust your heavenly father seek first the kingdom of heaven and all these things will be added to you they're right there in the boat with Jesus the one who's who's going to provide for their needs and he's saying no no what are you doing if you're following me you don't need to worry about that. You need to worry about the teaching that you're listening to and approving of. And you think about Matthew's audience, right? Who still has the Pharisees and Sadducees, even post-resurrection. Don't listen to those guys. Don't, don't, hang, don't do what they do. And Jesus will talk more about that later. But because teaching is powerful. The teaching you listen to and approve of will have a permeating effect on your life. So what do you do when you have so many voices of teaching, in our culture especially, whether you're talking about just what you hear on the news, the cultural narrative, uh, your favorite uh, person on YouTube, teaching. So what? how do you know who to listen to and who not to? Well, we listen to Jesus' warning here, you must stay away from teaching that... Emphasizes actions only, disconnected from the inner person. A lot of therapy and stuff that happens in our culture is like, it's all behavior and it's all about the brain and it's all about this stuff. Now, there's aspects of that that are true, but it's not, we are both, in, we are both physical and spiritual beings united. So the externals do have an influence on the internal, but there are both and. And God views the heart and the inner person as more important. And so if you've got multiple messages in our culture that just say, well, uh, deal with the behavior and you're good. No, not in God's eyes. If you only emphasize external actions disconnected from the inner person, don't listen to that. Or you can think about teaching that emphasizes reliance on natural privileges and heritage. Don't listen to that, right? The idea that, well... I I go to church every week, or I was born to Christian parents, or I'm an American, or this, that, or the other thing, right? Whatever that natural privilege or heritage that you have, and thinking that that's going to make you okay, I'm I'm good, you know? God's going to be fine with me because I have those natural privileges and heritage. I'm good. Well, that's what the Pharisees and Sadducees did, and and John the Baptist, and by extension, Jesus said, no, no. No, that's that's. don't buy into that kind of teaching. Or that elevates tradition above God's Word. Well, let's apply, and some of that, it's just, um, it can become an overemphasis. And we talked about that a couple weeks ago in Matthew 15. But when you, over, you elevate, you overemphasize tradition over above God's Word, don't listen to that sort of teaching. Don't buy into it. Because As soon as you buy into it, it's going to, maybe a little start, but it's going to permeate your whole life. And then really, if we were to kind of give a summary thing, teaching that seeks to justify and promote self, rather than listening to what God is saying. And basically, that's going to be every teaching in our culture, because what does the natural person want to do? To justify and promote self. It'll do it in a lot of different ways, but teaching, whether it's out in the culture or whether it's going under the guise of Christianity, teaching that seeks to justify and promote self. You're enough. You're good. You do you. Follow your heart. Like all of these messages, they're just teaching that seeks to justify and promote self rather than listening to what is God's assessment? What is God saying? Do you really want to hear that? Because God's assessment of every individual is, you're a sinner and you deserve my wrath. You're not enough, and you can never be. You're not okay. You're a rebel, and you need to repent, and you need to lay down arms, and you need to follow Jesus, and you need to trust Jesus. But all of that teaching, just like this Pharisees and Sadducees, we need to avoid. And we can do it too. Um, we can easily slip into these things. There are so many easy ways we, as, even as Christians, can start doing one of those things. Emphasizing actions only, disconnected from the inner person. Emphasizing reliance on natural privileges and heritage rather than, rather than repentance and faith. Elevating tradition above God's word. Seeking to justify and promote ourselves, even under the guise of Christianity and even under the guise of the gospel, rather than listening to what God is saying. We must beware of those things. Beware of teaching that promotes self-justification rather than seeing and following Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would guard us, um, that we would not seek to promote self, that we would not seek to um, justify self, that we would not fall prey to the same sort of teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees, but Lord, we would be a humble people that we would understand our desperate condition, our deserts of your wrath against us for eternity, and yet your great and amazing grace through Jesus, that he would die and take that wrath in the place of those who would entrust themselves to you, that we now have a life of following him, of true repentance that bears fruit, and Lord, we just, all we can do is give thanks and praise And Lord, we desire to follow you in the way you want. Guard us. Guard us from this sort of teaching that we can so easily slip into. Protect us even as we go this week. Help us to identify the wrongful messages, not just of the culture, but other messages that we'd even try to slip in in the name of Christianity, Lord God. We would pray that you would protect us, that you would give us discernment, and that we would stay anchored in the gospel. Lord, be with us as we go this week, even as we meet people that are under the sway and the spell of those messages. Help us to speak clearly the gospel of grace. Give us opportunities, grant repentance, even as you've granted it to us. We ask these things in the name of Christ. Amen.